I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, March 10th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a recent study provides more detail on transmission of COVID-19 in pediatric carriers. Then, Alabama's governor is seeking to improve conditions in correctional facilities by expanding private prisons. But reform advocates in the region are urging a different approach. Plus, after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, we preview our pandemic anniversary special. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. High school students throughout the state are gearing up for spring break. The week-long reprieve from classes is often a time for vacations and travel. But without the available vaccine for adolescents, health care professionals caution transmission of the coronavirus is still a risk for the demographic. And now more details are being revealed about the extent of transmission in children during the pandemic. Around 38,000 coronavirus cases have been identified in Mississippi children under the age of 18. But a recent study examining antibodies finds there could be as many as 10 times more pediatric infections than previously thought. Dr. Charlotte Hobbs, pediatrician at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and lead author of the study, says it's possible that many of these children never showed symptoms of the disease. She shares more with our Kobe Vance. What we looked at was... um the profile of immune responses um, or antibody positivity to SARS-CoV-2 as a marker of infection. Um, And then we took that data and compared it to Mississippi State Department of Health case incidence data for the exact same age group. And what we found was between May to September, there was a steady increase in case incidence of SARS-CoV-2 infection in children as, you know, designated either by this antibody response we're looking at or immune response to the virus um, or by those cases reported to the Mississippi State Department of Health for, you know, providers who reported that they had a patient who had tested positive for COVID-19. 
So the data paralleled very nicely, um, and we saw about a 3% increase per month over this period of time, very steady increase. However, when we actually looked at the prevalence of immune responses to SARS-CoV-2 in these blood samples and compared that to the case incidence data, it paralleled, but it was several fold higher, suggesting that um, the case reporting vastly um, underestimated the number of children who actually were infected with SARS-CoV-2. And that probably is because of a number of reasons, but one of them is that children more commonly do not have pronounced symptoms to SARS-CoV-2 as compared with adults. So it may be that, um, you know, children are less likely to be tested. Um, perhaps their parents may be less likely to take them to the doctor if they don't have very pronounced symptoms, or, you know, certainly if they don't have symptoms at all, they may they may not be tested. So we think this difference is probably accounted for somewhat by by those reasons. Are there any demographics that stand out as uh, having higher transmission rates or being more impacted? We did find in this study um, data that parallels another study that we published in the pediatrics um, journal a few months ago that um, children of racial and ethnic minorities were um, several fold higher um, or more likely to um, test positive for immune responses to SARS-CoV-2. So this actually is data that parallels and echoes previous reports that show um, that SARS-CoV-2 seems to be um, more prevalent in um, children of racial and ethnic minorities. And now you mentioned this earlier, but a lot of children tend to come out asymptomatically. Um, they don't have, they don't show symptoms. They uh, can live a normal life, um, or at least as normal as they can be right now. But point being, you know, parents, uh, a lot of parents have thought that their children are going to be fine. Are, are there any uh, concerns that uh, pediatricians like yourself have for children getting COVID, either in the short term or long term? So I think that, again, you know, the study of, of SARS-CoV-2 in the pediatric population has been a relatively neglected field, specifically because, as you say, children seem to more commonly not present with the pronounced symptoms that adults do. But there are exceptions to that, and children actually can become quite sick with SARS-CoV-2. Not as commonly, certainly in younger children, but once children get beyond um, the middle school years, they can actually behave more like adults when they actually have SARS-CoV-2, meaning that with acute COVID, they can become quite sick. But um, in addition to that, there's, of course, this newly described clinical entity called multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, which is quite rare, but is a severe COVID-associated um, syndrome that was only recently described. It can be treated successfully if recognized early with aggressive um, treatment. Um, I think it's important to note that, biologically speaking, we don't know the long-term effects of SARS-CoV-2 um, in the pediatric population, and so this is a field of study in which we um, and investigators at children's hospitals nationwide are still um, engaged in looking at the um, short-term and long-term effects of SARS-CoV-2 infection. Dr. Hobbs, is there anything else that we might not have touched on that you feel is important for Mississippians to understand right now to be able to uh, put in their tool belt for protecting their children? So this study actually shows that children get infected to a much higher degree than we previously understood. And that information alone underscores the importance of the need to continue to practice measures to reduce SARS-CoV-2 transmission 
which include, of course, masking, social distancing, and hand washing, as for the CDC and Mississippi State Department of Health. The study does not suggest in any way, shape, or form that children should not be in school. What it shows is that kids are vulnerable to infection, and we know what measures work, so we need to continue to employ those measures to keep our children safe, keep our community safe, and keep our kids in school, because we all know the benefits of in-person schooling. Dr. Charlotte Hobbs is Professor of Pediatrics and Infectious Disease Specialist at UMMC. Dr. Hobbs, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. Dr. Hobbs says pediatricians are encouraging older family members to get the coronavirus vaccine to protect kids from contracting COVID-19. Only those 16 years and older can get the Pfizer vaccine. And Dr. Anita Henderson, president of the Mississippi chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics, says a vaccine for adolescents age 12 and older may not be available until the fall. She agrees the current school year has informed pediatricians more on the nature of transmission in and out of the classroom. What we learned was school could be done safely because it was in an orderly fashion. Kids were spread apart and they wore masks. But the transmission seemed to happen on the weekends, at slumber parties, at play dates, at weddings, and at funerals. And so that information um, led us to learn and to develop strategies so that kids could stay in school so they could learn in person safely, um, and that we tried to put the focus on avoiding those extracurricular activities and those weekend activities where we knew that transmission was happening. Currently, Mississippi has around uh, 31,838 cases among uh, children 5 through 17, and then another 6,586 for uh, kids under the age of uh, four four and under. Um, I'm curious, do you think that number could be a lot higher uh, looking at this study? I do think that number probably is a lot higher. Um, children and their parents, you know, typically are a little resistant to getting a nasal swab. To be honest, it's hard to swab a two or three or four year old. And um, oftentimes uh, when, when children come in, if there are multiple siblings in the family, um, it's hard to get a swab on a two or three or four year old. And parents don't always want to test them. So I think there is a bit of resistance, and in particularly last summer, we were having to use a different type of swab. We were using a larger swab. It was a little more uncomfortable. Uh, to be quite honest, sometimes children had nosebleeds after they were swabbed. So the swab we were using last summer is quite different than what we're using now. And so I think the, the technique, the turnaround time has become much better and so now, you know, we are able to get a swab and a result back much more quickly than we were last summer. So hopefully we are seeing, um, you know, more parents coming in and getting those swabs done and less resistance compared to what we saw last summer. Looking at all of this data, uh, what, are you, what do you as a pediatrician think about all this? Is it, what, are, what risk are we seeing for kids? Um, as a pediatrician, I would like to see um, more emphasis put on, on kids and safety long-term. And, and what we're doing right now, there are some coronavirus trials down to the age of 12 with Moderna and Pfizer, and hopefully that data will be out um, late summer or late spring, early summer. If that data shows evidence of efficacy, then possibly early fall, Um, late summer or early fall, we may be able to start vaccinating those 12 and up. And I think that would be really important 
to help our kids back, get back into middle school, into high school, into more of a normal environment. And I also want parents and grandparents to understand that right now, since children can't get vaccinated against coronavirus, it is so important for the parents and the grandparents, the teachers and the coaches to get vaccinated when they are eligible in order to protect the children. Children generally do really, really well, but we unfortunately have had several children die in Mississippi of the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. And the other thing I think we have to remember is it's not just um, the mortality rate from coronavirus that's important. It is also um, morbidity. And we are seeing kids suffer from the long hauler symptom, the um, post-acute COVID symptom, just like we're seeing that in adults. And so we don't want our children to suffer from that brain fog, those headaches, that fatigue, just like the adults are suffering. I'm very happy that the National Institute of Health is doing a large study right now on COVID long haulers, and it is including children and adults. So we can see what um, sort of treatment options might be available in the future to help um, with all those symptoms of um, post-COVID, post-acute COVID symptoms. Dr. Anita Henderson is the president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, Mississippi chapter. Dr. Henderson, thank you for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. Coming up, Alabama's governor is seeking to improve conditions in correctional facilities by expanding private prisons. But reform advocates in the region are urging a different approach. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. At Issue takes you to the Mississippi Capitol every week as lawmakers debate and discuss the issues. This Medicaid thing is really on my mind. This is the biggest vote we're going to cast this session. I believe that all people have a right to vote, and some of us have had many struggles trying to do just that. If you agree to come teach in a Mississippi school, we will pay down your student loan debt. The policies that we stand for are right. Watch At Issue Friday nights at 7.30 on MPB TV. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi, Louisiana, and Alabama all have higher incarceration rates than most of the country, but each state is testing a different approach to address the issue. Here's Alabama's Governor Kay Ivey speaking earlier this year. One of the most critical issues facing our state is the dire condition of our prisons. Ivy recently signed a lease for two new privately owned prisons. This decision sparked uproar with the public and the legislature. From the Gulf States newsroom, Becca Schimmel takes a look at the region's differing approaches to reducing incarceration rates and overcrowding. It's been about four years since Alan Parker moved into the house he built in Tallahassee, Alabama. His retirement home is less than a mile from where one of the new prisons is slated to be built. Well, I was dismayed about the whole process. Of course, it affects my family directly, and it's not like it's going to be just a regular small little prison. The proposed mega prison could nearly double the population of Tallahassee, a town of about 4,700 people. Parker has heard local officials promoting the prison as a chance for economic development. But I just don't see it being a benefit overall for our community. Parker doesn't want to see any new prisons built in Alabama, but he recognizes that something needs to change. The U.S. Department of Justice filed a lawsuit in December over unconstitutional conditions in Alabama's prisons for men. The suit alleges violence, sexual abuse, as well as excessive force by prison staff. 
David Zell is the co-founder of Alabama Students Against Prisons. He says to address those concerns, he wants the state to hire more staff and increase wages, not build new prisons. What the DOJ lawsuit and report found was that the Alabama Department of Corrections is unable to effectively run a prison without violating the rights of every single person who is in those prisons. And new facilities won't change that. But Governor Kay Ivey says the goal of building these prisons is to address all of those problems for the more than 24,000 inmates in the state. According to her, it would be more expensive to fix the state's existing prisons than to build new ones. Not only will these modern facilities improve prison conditions and safety for both Alabama's correctional staff and inmates, they will also be designed to accommodate inmate rehabilitation. Ivy cautioned that if Alabama doesn't build new prisons, they'll be forced to release a massive amount of inmates. The incarceration rates in Mississippi and Louisiana are even higher. Louisiana is number one in the country and Mississippi comes in second. Both of those states are also under investigation by the Justice Department for the conditions in their prisons and their release practices. But officials in those states are taking a different approach. Louisiana is letting some people out of prison and working towards sentencing reform. Burl Kane, the former warden of Louisiana's Angola prison, is Mississippi's new Department of Corrections commissioner. Our job is to correct deviant behavior, you know, not lock and feed and torture and torment. Alicia Judkins is the Mississippi State Director for Criminal Justice Reform with Forward U.S., an advocacy group. She says Mississippi is in an incarceration crisis and wants to see more intervention before someone enters the criminal justice system. The way we sentence people, we have some of the harshest sentencing laws in the country. And so that's driving up our imprisonment rate um, and our prison population. Judkins says Mississippi is at a crossroads, and if it doesn't change those laws, it could end up in Alabama's position, deciding whether to build new prisons or not. Mississippi also has aging prisons that are in need of serious repairs and updates. Parchman Prison is 120 years old, and like many of the state's prisons, it's overcrowded. My opinion would be that instead of building prisons, that we enact policies and sentencing reforms that that shrinks the system. Um, You don't need new prisons if you don't have the people to put in them. Alabama's governor sees things differently. She maintains new buildings will solve many of the state's prison problems. CoreCivic, the private prison company, is expected to sign leases on two of Alabama's new prisons this summer. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Becca Schimmel. This story was produced as part of a regional collaboration with public media stations in Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana. Coming up after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, we preview our pandemic anniversary special. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is a Southern Remedy Health Minute. Can IBS disturbances cause irregular heartbeat? That stands for irritable bowel syndrome. There's three different forms of it. All of three of those categories, they have uh, cramping, abdominal cramping, and, and discomfort that can come and go. 
one type is just uh, having diarrhea with that. One is constipation, and one is sort of a mix. Uh, to me, that's one of the worst discomforts that you can have is GI distress. So for the individual, it is. But from a long-term standpoint, it typically does not cause any problems and typically doesn't cause anything like weight loss. Um, as far as an arrhythmia or an irregular heart rate with that, if you have enough diarrhea to where you're uh, dehydrated, certainly that can affect your heart rate. And if you're prone to have arrhythmias, uh, you know, like uh, some of the more common ones are uh, supraventricular tachycardia, which is a fast heart rate that originates in the upper chambers of the heart, or atrial fibrillation, which also uh, is in the upper chambers, then, yeah, it could affect that. But usually IBS doesn't cause severe enough diarrhea to cause those kinds of things. If you combine it with, say, not drinking enough or if you're outside and you get dehydrated uh, during, during the hotter parts of the year, then certainly that could that could impact it. But uh, usually IBS alone wouldn't do that. So if you're having symptoms like that, you may want to check with your physician to get them to check you out. Probably do an EKG, maybe a, a little bit further testing of like a heart monitor test uh, or even a, a referral to a cardiologist. For more health tips and medical information, listen to Southern Remedy each weekday morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Michelle McAdoo. Well, during the month of March, we give a little extra attention to all of the amazing accomplishments of strong, determined women. Every woman has a story to tell and gifts to share with the world. So listen every weeknight from 8 to 11 p.m. as I honor amazing ladies of Mississippi. Stay tuned. This is MPB Think Radio, where Mississippi is our mission. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Tomorrow marks the anniversary of the day the World Health Organization first declared COVID-19 a pandemic. It's also the day Mississippi reported its first confirmed case of COVID-19. Coming up in place of Mississippi Edition tomorrow, we have a special broadcast revisiting some of the biggest stories of the past year in our region. It's called A Year Like No Other, COVID-19 in the Gulf States. And it's part of a collaboration called the Gulf States Newsroom. Prisca Neely is the managing editor of the Gulf States Newsroom, and she tells us what's coming up. Hey, Karen. So before we talk about the broadcast, what is the Gulf States Newsroom? So this is a regional collaboration between three stations in this Gulf region. So we have WBHM in Birmingham, WWNO in New Orleans, and of course, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. All of these stations are small and mighty newsrooms. And the idea is that we can work together to really do more to amplify important issues. So things like health care, criminal justice, wealth and poverty. We've added reporting power into the region by by hiring great reporters who are based at each of those stations and we'll be covering those issues those issues throughout the region but at the same time the local stations are all working together to because you know because in this region there are so many shared issues um, and this broadcast tomorrow is going to be an example of what we can do when we work together to really shed light on important issues. Yeah. And, and so please tell us about this special broadcast. 
So, you know, as you mentioned in the intro, this is a big week of anniversaries. This is the week that the pandemic became official, the week that Mississippi saw its first case. And it's also the same week that the first confirmed cases in Louisiana and Alabama, you know, were confirmed. So this seemed like a real moment to look back. And we had some brainstorming sessions across the the three stations to really figure out what are some of the big stories and how can we circle back? You know, as journalists, sometimes we spend so much time talking to people and and don't always get the chance to follow up. So that's what the reporters have been doing. They've been circling back with some of those stories that they did early on to find out how things are going on now. And then those new reporters that we've added in into this collaboration who are covering criminal justice, wealth and poverty and healthcare, um, we'll also be hearing from them about the pandemic related stories that they are going to be focusing on in the, the months ahead. It is just remarkable to think about how much has changed in one year. Yeah. And, you know, in putting together this this special that you'll hear tomorrow, I've been digging through a lot of old tape and it's just it's just wild to hear, you know, all of the new vocabulary that that's entered all the new terms that have entered our vocabulary in the last year, you know, stop the spread, social distancing, Um, you know, they're just there's just so much that's changed in this last year. And so this really feels like a moment to kind of look back on that and and stop and appreciate it um, because it is so easy to kind of forget things with all the changes that have happened. Prisca Neely is the managing editor of the Gulf States Newsroom. Thanks so much, Prisca. Thank you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.